Today's episode is brought to you by the new book, Cannabis Lullaby, a Painsomniac's quest for a good night's sleep. It's written by Painopolis co-host and award-winning journalist, David Sharp. Cannabis Lullaby is now available in print, ebook, and audiobook. Get your copy today at Painopolis.com. Hello and welcome to Painopolis. I'm Sheila Della Rosa. Today, ticked off, a wildlife biologist confronts Lyme disease. Nine years ago, avid outdoors woman Kelly Weintraub found herself in a scary and unfamiliar place, a wheelchair. A wildlife biologist, Weintraub thought she was having a stroke. So she went to the ER where the doctors told her she was fine, but Weintraub knew she wasn't. Something was making her sick. This was just the latest calamity in a series of health ordeals that had forced Weintraub to go on medical leave. She'd suffered for years from symptoms that mysteriously would come and go. Fatigue, muscle cramps, migrating pain, brain fog. A month after the ER visit, a chance encounter with a colleague whose wife had long confronted the same symptoms led Weintraub to figure out what she was battling, Lyme disease. But that wasn't the half of it. Known as the great imitator, Lyme disease mimics other conditions such as multiple sclerosis and fibromyalgia. Lyme is a bacterial infection primarily spread by ticks, but ticks can transmit lots of other diseases too. There's Rocky Mountain spotted fever, the heartland virus, tick-borne relapsing fever. These and many others can trigger disabling consequences. What's more, new tick-borne diseases are being discovered all the time. If you think you're out of the woods because you live far from Tick Central, the northeast states of the U.S., circle back to the names of the tick-borne diseases I just said. Yep, the West and Midwest are flush with ticks too. In fact, in some places, your risk of getting some of these other tick-borne diseases is greater than getting Lyme disease, which is actually found throughout the U.S. and in more than 60 other countries. Indeed, Weintraub lives on the West Coast. Living in a leafy suburb or hiking in the woods can potentially jeopardize your health these days. Even if a tick makes you sick, good luck trying to get an accurate diagnosis. Why? For starters, tick saliva has an anesthetizing substance in it. Less than half of people bitten by a tick recall the event. Weintraub doesn't. Plus, the bite is supposed to give you a distinctive red bullseye rash. Well, that's bullshit. Seeing a bullseye rash is typically the symptom that prompts doctors to start patients on a two- or three-week course of antibiotics to prevent Lyme, but the rash doesn't always appear. It didn't in Weintraub's case. Finally, the lab tests that are most commonly used to diagnose Lyme are unreliable. They miss more than half of all cases. For Weintraub, the diagnoses kept coming. Ten months into a controversial antibiotics regimen, she found out she had two more nasty tick-borne infections anaplasmosis and bartonellosis. That's why she was still sick, despite taking antibiotics for so long. Some experts say as many as 50% of Lyme sufferers like Weintraub, the ones who weren't treated within 30 days after being infected, stay sick long-term. But Weintraub wanted to beat those odds in a big way. And so, while she was bedridden, she ruminated on what being well meant for her. Eventually, she came up with only one thing, hiking the 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. Her quest set. She spent hours on the internet reading Pacific Crest Trail hikers' journals. Their posts made her feel as if she was laced into her own hiking boots and walking through the wilderness instead of where she really was, flat on her back in her parents' spare bedroom. 
In this episode, Weintraub gives us a detailed map of how she went from the active life to the sick bay. Today, Weintraub talks about why she had no inkling that a ticking time bomb of tick-borne diseases was lurking inside her for years before she got sick, how she finally found out she had Lyme, why she resorted to the controversial treatment of taking antibiotics for two and a half years, and why, while bedridden, she decided to hike the 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail. But first, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It's not to be used as a substitute for qualified medical advice. Go to Pinopolis.com to read our disclaimer in its entirety, along with our terms of use and other important information. Now, let's dive into today's show. You didn't know that a tick bite had infected you with bacteria that was creating essentially a ticking time bomb in your body. What was going on in your life when you started having some odd health problems? There was a couple times, actually, that kind of had these flare-ups that, in retrospect, I think could have been maybe the beginning of this. I uh, worked as a seasonal wildlife biologist, and that involved walking through the woods, cross-country, bushwhacking through manzanita and other shrubs. And I don't remember ever picking up a tick, but it would have been highly unusual if I didn't. And around that time, I would have these recurring where it seemed like I was getting a cold every couple months, which isn't necessarily that unusual. But in hindsight, some of the symptoms that I was describing, and I know this because I keep a pretty detailed journal. Being a scientist, I kind of document everything. So when I look back at that, I think this is pretty suspicious. So maybe 2005, 2006, some of these symptoms started showing up on a recurring basis. And in 2007, I did go to a doctor and described some of them. I have a history of hypothyroid disease in my family. And so we thought, well, maybe that's what it was. And I was tested and the results from my thyroid came back normal. So they said, well, there's nothing wrong with you, but we could put you on this antidepressant. I said, I'm not depressed. I just don't feel good. So that was when I realized, you know, there might be something going on, but it wasn't consistent. So the symptoms would come and go. And then I went to graduate school in Humboldt County, Tick Central. So there was a lot of opportunity there for me to maybe have picked up a tick And I continued to have some bizarre symptoms there. Like, what do you mean by bizarre? Night sweats was one that kept coming up. I would wake up just drenched in sweat and had no explanation for that. I had, again, those recurring flu-like symptoms, but like never actually progressing into getting the runny nose and the fever and all of that. It would feel like it was coming on. I would feel like I had a fever, but when I took my temperature, it would be normal or it would be below normal, but I would feel like I was burning up. Did you have any um, heart palpitations? I know that's pretty common and also migrating pain. I did have heart palpitations. I did not at that time have the migrating pain. I did have that later. Were you seeing a um, just general doctor or who was telling you there's no problem with all this? Yeah, so at that time, it was just a general doctor in the clinic in town. I didn't really have a specialist and didn't see anyone regularly because I kind of wrote the symptoms off as I was just getting sick a lot because I was around so many other students in my classes. And looking back, it seems pretty clear that there was something going on because those same symptoms just continued and progressed into getting a lot worse. So I was taking notes, like, for example, on a calendar or a daily planner, I would write down, feel like I'm getting sick sore throat today, or this week I was particularly feeling sick and just keeping track like that. I was definitely noting things that were going on. 
So then what happened? I graduated. I got a master's in wildlife management. And right out of school, I was hired as a wildlife biologist in California. You're already married by this time, right? Yeah. And my husband and I were both attending school. I was a year ahead in a different program. And so he stayed in Humboldt and I came to start my job. And it would have been that spring. The symptoms got a lot worse. It was, again, these flu-like symptoms. The night sweats were still happening, but then I started feeling this strange stuff start happening, things like brain fog. Like I couldn't think or process my own thoughts, and like having conversations could be really difficult. Like your coworkers would start talking to you and you couldn't follow? It was almost more like I couldn't translate what I wanted to say into words to actually be able to speak what I wanted to say. Like I could see the sentence, but I couldn't make my mouth make the words. It was really odd. That must have been really frightening. Yeah. So that was one of the worst. And my arms would be numb or tingling, particularly below the elbows. It was like I had uh, rubber bands kind of around my elbows and everything below would just go numb. Eventually, I went back to a doctor that I was seeing and I asked to get my thyroid tested again because I thought, well, I've had this history of thyroid disease in my family and it's likely. So that was in the summer of 2013 and I was tested. But at that time, I didn't know a whole lot about thyroid disease either. And the results were normal. I thought, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with me. But in the fall, I became very, very sick. I went back to the doctor. They tested me for thyroid again, but they ran some different tests. And it turned out I was extremely hypothyroid. My TSH was up to 205, and it should be below 3. This, I thought, was the answer. Okay, I'm just severely hypothyroid. My thyroid controls a lot of what your body processes and does. And so I thought once we got that back on track that I would be healthy again. So I started taking thyroid medication, and over time, I increased the dose. And that didn't really help to my horror. And I didn't like the way the current doctor that I was seeing was addressing the issue, and she didn't seem to be taking it very seriously. So I switched to a different doctor who was more diligent in trying to get my thyroid levels up to where they should be and prescribing some different medications. She also tested me and found out that my vitamin D level was extremely low. So we thought, oh, that's another piece of it. So I started taking vitamin D supplements, and it still wasn't getting better. So I I ran into a colleague of mine at a wildlife conference who asked how I was doing, and I explained what was going on. And he said, you know, my wife has been dealing with Lyme disease for a number of years, and what you're describing sounds very similar to what she's been experiencing. I highly recommend that you look into that. And I hadn't even thought about it because I didn't remember ever having a tick bite. So I hadn't really considered that as a possibility. And so he shared with me that I should research the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Their acronym is ILADS. He said, go on their website and I could search for doctors near me that specialized and had a lot of experience in Lyme disease. So I did that and I typed in my zip code and came up with a list of doctors and I found one. And he ran the right tests and it came back positive for anaplasma and it came back positive for Lyme disease. What did you think when those tests came back positive? Well, it was a relief to finally know, but it was also really terrifying because by that point I had been reading a lot more about Lyme disease and I knew that when 
it was a chronic condition like mine was where you'd had it for several years that it can take many years to recover and many patients don't make a full recovery. So I didn't know how long it would take if I would get better and what it was going to take to get there. And I knew that whatever it was going to be very difficult. So I was pretty frightened, but also relieved to know that, you know, there really was something wrong with me and all these times that the test came back normal and they said, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. There really was something wrong that just the right tests hadn't been given. That was in uh, June of 2014. And you'd been on the job now for a year? About a year and a half. My employer was incredibly supportive. They let me take a, a medical leave of absence and I had coworkers donate sick leave to me so I could continue to receive some full pay for a while. I had a disability policy through work, so I was able to go on disability three full months, and then I was half-time for another month after that. Most people don't want to disclose to their coworkers or their boss what's happening with them. How did you feel about your boss and coworkers knowing how sick you were? It just felt I had a very good relationship with them, and I trusted them, and I I didn't really doubt that they cared about me, and I thought that they wanted me in that position and because they told me that, and they were willing to work with me. Plus, if they're donating their vacation days, they like you. Yeah, we have great relationships and see each other outside of work. So I felt very fortunate to be in that position where they valued me so much. They were great. And so one day you ended up in the ER. Tell me what happened that day. That was at the very beginning. I went to another county to do a bird survey training. So you're out in the woods and it's uh, getting up early and walking around. And during that, suddenly I had this extreme dizziness. It was, I don't even want to call it fatigue, but it's like your body, just my body stopped responding, like just walking across a parking lot. I couldn't get my body to do it. And so I realized there's something really going on here. At that point, I was just uh, deteriorating day by day. The symptoms were just getting so much worse. I knew I couldn't stay for the length of that training. I couldn't even walk across the meadow that was on flat ground to do that bird survey. So my parents lived not too far from there. So I went to stay with them. My husband at that point was still in school in another city. And that second night I was there, I was deteriorating really quickly and it was really frightening with this way that I couldn't put together sentences and feeling like I was barely holding on. And so we went to the emergency room thinking that, I mean, maybe it was something crazy, like I was having a stroke. We didn't know. It was just these really frightening symptoms. And I went in in a wheelchair because I couldn't really walk. And we went in and they took me in and they did a couple of blood tests and told me, oh, everything looks great. You're fine. I was like, I came in in a wheelchair. I'm not fine. And you're in a wheelchair and you're how old at this point? You're like in your 30s, right? Yeah, I think I was 31. That was pretty scary, too, because I realized that they weren't going to find out what was wrong with me. They weren't going to run the right tests. And if the emergency room can't help you, that's a scary feeling. So let's talk about the time when you were bedridden, which you called emotionally devastating. How bad did it get? Well, the interesting thing about it, I did keep a journal I wrote in very frequently throughout that time. And one thing that I kept writing was that it was really hard to believe that this was happening because in one hand, I was kind of not allowing myself to really believe it. Because if I did, then I would acknowledge it. And it felt like that that gave it more power over me. So on the one hand, I was trying to distance myself from it because I didn't want to succumb to that fear. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes it would just become too much and I'd just 
you know, break down crying <laughs> until I could get past that because it was really scary to not be able to get out of bed and walk from one side of the house to the other. It was that bad sometimes. And then it would do its cycle. And so then I would have the upside of the cycle where I was, I could go to the store, I could do a little bit more activity and it wasn't so debilitating, but then it would come back around again about a four-week cycle. And I had been keeping really detailed record of my symptoms, so I would be able to predict, okay, you know, don't freak out. I know you're going to start feeling sick again next week, and then it would happen. And that was really hard to know that no matter what I was doing, it was still going to come back. I had also changed my diet. I was on the autoimmune paleo protocol because I was trying to eliminate any foods that would be more difficult for my body to digest or anything that I might be allergic to. So it eliminates nightshades, things like potatoes, tomatoes, and eggplants, grains. So anything that people typically had allergies or difficult time digesting, this diet was designed to eliminate all of that so that your body can heal itself. So eliminating all these foods, and I was on, basically all I could eat was meat and then vegetables from the produce section that I would prepare myself. And I stuck to that for three years without eating a single other food. Wow. I was determined. So when you say meat and vegetables, that's really it? That's literally all, yeah. So you couldn't eat sugar? No. Because then when I was on so many antibiotics, what happens is that you start becoming susceptible to systemic yeast infections. So I had to be on an antifungal medication in addition to the antibiotics. And then because even that wasn't quite eliminating all of the, the yeast issues that were happening, I eliminated fruit. I went through a period where I ate no fruit at all. I was taking a lot of supplements like the vitamin D because we found I was so low. I was on my thyroid medication, and yet I was still going back into this. And so that was really scary. Like, there's nothing I could do at that point. Are you curious about whether cannabis can ease your chronic pain and help you finally get a decent night's sleep? I sure was. Hi, this is David Sharp here to tell you about my new book, Cannabis Lullaby, a painsomniac's quest for a good night's sleep. Fifteen years ago, I was so beaten down by chronic pain and pain-related insomnia that I couldn't even think straight. So one night, at the tender age of 47, I ate my first brownie ever made with a special ingredient. No, not walnuts, weed. A little while later, my pain and stress melted away and I snoozed for nine and a half hours. Best of all, I woke up totally refreshed. Fast forward to today and cannabis is still helping me tremendously. But there's a lot more to using it than eating a brownie. For example, some types of pot make it harder to get to sleep and it can also trigger other unintended effects. Knowledge is key, which is why I wrote Cannabis Lullaby. In it, you'll learn the specifics of how I acquire and use cannabis to relieve my painsomnia. I also share crucial new findings from the work of cannabis scientists worldwide. In Cannabis Lullaby, you'll gain evidence-based insights about pot that haven't yet trickled down to many doctors. Now, it's always smart to check with your physician before making any new healthcare decisions, including whether to use cannabis. It's not right for everybody, medically or legally. But if it's an option you've been pondering, and if you've got chronic pain, you know you have, go to painopolis.com and buy Cannabis Lullaby today. It's available in print, ebook, and audiobook. That's Cannabis Lullaby. Get your copy at painopolis.com. Yeah. 
And what are your parents making of all this? They were really scared as well. I couldn't drive. I was so disoriented that just getting up and walking across the house was really difficult. I didn't feel like I had the reflexes or just the ability to process driving. It just, I didn't feel safe, but not always. So when I was on the upside of the cycle, there'd be a couple weeks where I was like, I could sort of function more normally and maybe I could drive myself across town. I knew when I was more functional and then it was like this thing would just like this fog would just close in around me and I just lose all my functionality. And so they would drive me to my doctor's appointments where I needed to go. The doctor I was seeing before I found the Lyme specialist, she referred me to a neurologist. That was before I had the Lyme diagnosis. And I went and I had an MRI and I had an EEG, which looks at your brain waves to try to get some more answers. But those all came back normal. Um, and so this bed rest time was when you were on medical leave and disability. So yes. the three and a half months that you talked about. Yes. Wow, that's a long time to be on bed rest. Yes, it was um, it was really hard. It was a, a really dark time and um, it was hard to get through it. What strategies worked and what didn't just to get through the day and stay hopeful that you could get better? It definitely varied. Partway through this, I got the diagnosis that it was Lyme disease. And so when I was capable of reading, I would do a lot of research about the disease and what the treatments were and kind of what the controversies were and what what was likely to come along with Lyme disease, especially when you've had it chronically. A lot of other things start happening. They call it the layers of the onion where you start peeling back and realizing all the other things that come along with Lyme disease, like mineral deficiencies. So I had the vitamin D. I also found out I had an iron deficiency. I took a food allergy test with my new doctor, found out I had some food allergies I hadn't known about. And were they common allergies to foods that you would miss, like milk and cheese, or or were they, you know, uncommon ones where it's like, okay, I don't care about that? No, it was garlic. That was sad. But on the other hand, I was so determined to do whatever it took to get well. That was the main thing for me was I was going to do whatever it took. One of the things you did when you were bedridden was you decided that for you, being well meant hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Now that's a 2,650-mile trail from Mexico to Canada that passes through some of the most rugged wilderness in California, Oregon, and Washington. One thru-hiker called it a merciless, ass-kicking monster. (laughs) Yeah. Four people died on the trail the year you hiked it. Yeah. Two from river crossings, one fell off ice, and another one from heat exposure. Why did you pick a goal that arduous? I mean, you're laying in bed, you can't do anything, and you're like, Pacific Crest Trail, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be an answer where I might start tearing up as I'm talking, so I'll just talk through it, because it's pretty emotional. So I grew up backpacking. I've been hiking, backpacking with my family my whole life. I had planned that in 2015, I was going to hike the John Muir Trail, and my parents wanted to do it with me. So then this happened, and I I couldn't even walk across the house. Most days I couldn't, you know, walk to the end of the block and back. Um, so that was really devastating, you know, and that was what I loved to do. And I think there were a couple reasons why. So being really sick... And knowing that it's going to be a really long journey, you need something really huge to grab onto to pull you out of something like that. And so just saying, I'm going to get better, like, what does that mean when you're that sick? You know, does that mean, okay, I get to go back to work? Does that mean I'm better? 
okay, I get to uh, go for a hike. Does that mean I'm better? What does that really mean for me? And I knew that it just wasn't going to be enough. If I, if I go back to work, that's not enough. And I had read stories of people who, you know, they never recovered. Maybe they got 50% better or they got 60% better. And that was terrifying. And so I knew that I would only be really recovered if I could do something like that. And that had been a dream of mine where I'd thought, I'll do the John Muir Trail, 216 miles in the Sierra Nevada. And maybe someday I will hike the Pacific Crest Trail. That had been my my thought. But then when this happened, it was like, no, that day might never come. Two months ago, you were out hiking and you felt okay. And now you can't get out of bed. You could become disabled at any moment. So as soon as you can, you are going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. So everything that I did from that point forward was in line with that goal. How did your husband and parents look at you? I mean, you're in bed and you announced you're going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. When they look back into your eyes, were they like, she's crazy, but we won't tell her? Or what was their reaction to that announcement? Well, I don't recall when I shared it that I was going to do it. I think it might have been more hypothetical at first, the way I was talking about it. I was serious, but I know that they, I'm pretty sure they believed I was going to do it because um, I have a history of making things happen if I really want things. So they were really supportive through the whole thing. And while you were bedridden, were you following other people on the trail? I did do that. I had read trail journals previously from hikers who were hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Some of them post daily, some of them um, whenever they come into reception, but it's inspirational. And so I had been following hiker journals online, and so I, I kept doing that, and that was another push. It was like, I, I can do that. I can get there. I want to go back to your treatment. You must have just been on a desperate hunt to figure out what was going on with you. Tell me some of the ways you tried to drum up answers to your health problems. Talked about reading books that helped you figure out some. What else did you do? I went online and I would research what other people had done. Once I had the suggestion that it could be Lyme disease, I went to that ILADS, International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. I looked up their checklist and I kind of just, I checked down all the symptoms that I had. I also would start in a lot more detail recording on a daily basis. I would just write down everything that was happening to me that day. So then I could go back. And then when I started really geeking out on this, I would start graphing my symptoms. And that's when I realized that they were coming in this like four or six week cycle. They'd always reappear. The first thing would be a sore throat would come back. Once I start feeling a sore throat, you know, write that down. And then I knew, okay, all the rest is coming. And that was sort of reassuring as I was beginning to understand the cycle, but also really frightening, like what's happening? I don't understand. But then I could search. Once I really had a better understanding of what my symptoms were, I could start like looking through what all the possibilities might be. And it seemed more and more likely like Lyme disease was matching a lot of the symptoms that I was having. And so finding that doctor was a big step toward that. But then even then, we still had a lot of other mysteries. For example, um, I had been on antibiotics for a while, and we had switched them up um, a number of times. And when you say for a while, how long? Almost a year. Which right there, that's controversial because a lot of doctors don't want to have Lyme patients on that long, right? Correct. Yeah. So how did your doctor figure out the antibiotic regimen, the drug, the dose, the duration? Was there a lot of trial and error? A little bit. We knew I had anaplasma. We knew I had Lyme because of the antibodies that I had. So he would pick one that would target those particular bacteria. I started with doxycycline, for example. And then with Lyme, the bacteria has the ability to switch 
forms. And so you need a different antibiotic to target the different forms. And so we would try to be on more than one at a time so it could target more than one form of the bacteria. And so we would try one, and if I had a reaction that was negative, like, for example, one time I started one and I started having pretty severe heart palpitations, so we took me off of that one. And then, or I would start one and I would just, I'd get really nauseous. I would just have a really hard time tolerating it. Then we would adjust it and say, okay, so that particular one, I really needed to take it because it targeted the cyst form of the bacteria. And so we came up with, by trial and error, okay, I'm going to take that one for three days and then I won't take it for three days and I'll take it for three days and then I won't. So I would kind of cycle it through. It was a little bit of trial and error and then a little bit of just also cycling through the different medications. So, of course, you're not on the same one the whole time because you don't want to build up resistance to any of the antibiotics. So that was important, too. So you just tried a lot of different antibiotics and trial and error. And when they worked, they worked. And when they didn't, you moved on to a different one. It was hard, of course, because I didn't really know if it was working or not until it had been several months because the way the symptoms would really flare up every so often, you wouldn't know. And it got to where some of the symptoms had kind of abated, or at least had become more minimal. But I still was really struggling with these same symptoms. And when I had these weird red rashes that would just develop, like I would have a burning feeling in my arm, and I'd look down and there'd be like a red rash. And that's a symptom for Bartonella. They call it cat scratch fever is another name because it kind of looks like a cat has like scratch marks. My doctor tested me through several different labs for Bartonella, and I kept coming back. I didn't react to it. But finally, because I had, and there's some other Bartonella-specific symptoms as well, like uh, pain on the bottom of your feet when you get out of bed in the morning and a couple other things. And I kind of had this sounded based on the symptoms like I had Bartonella. So finally, he said, let's put this particular drug that targets Bartonella. We'll give you this and see what happens. And that was like my miracle pill. <laughs> and from that time on, and that was in the end of April of 2015, my progress was so much swifter because we had finally targeted all of the diseases that I had, and we hadn't really known I had Bartonella. My doctor explained that if the particular strain that I have is not in the test that I'm given. The test is not going to show up positive because it's a different strain. And so we think that's what happened. I was being tested for a strain of Bartonella that I didn't have, but I did have another one because as soon as we put that specific drug in, I made a lot more progress with my symptoms getting so much better so quickly. Did you try anything that turned out to be worthless or even downright quackery? I mean, you get so desperate when you're desperately ill. Was there anything in that category? No, not for Lyme. I knew from hearing about experiences that other people have had and reading about them online and reading about them in books that um, I felt that antibiotics were the best way to go for this particular suite of diseases and that alternative treatments, people didn't seem to really get better. And I was the kind of person that did not want to take antibiotics for any other purpose. So it was hard for me to go that route and to really commit to it. But I, I felt that it was really important. How did your doctor talk you into it if you kind of had a knee-jerk reaction against it? He didn't talk me into it. I was determined that I was going to do what it took. I was just going to do it. You know, sometimes you don't want to do something and you just go for it. If you've been on antibiotic treatment for a long time, like the months or years that you were on, what happens when you stop taking them? Because I've read that for a lot of people, their symptoms come right back when they stop taking antibiotics. Did that happen to you? It did happen to me. I stopped antibiotics for the first time in 2016. 
And yeah, the symptoms started coming back. So I had to start again in June taking antibiotics again. That must have been demoralizing. I mean, here you've used the big guns and you're right back. It was hard um, knowing that it wasn't over yet. But that fall, I was able to get off of them and stay off. And so it just wasn't quite there yet. And when I got off, there were a lot of other strange things that popped up, like I broke out in severe acne that has actually never really completely gone away. But I mean, like my entire back covered in pimples. Just out of the blue? After stopping the antibiotics, yeah. So stuff like that that's unexpected and weird. But I preferred that to all the other symptoms. We haven't talked about the cost of having Lyme disease, and you had to choose between going into debt to get the treatment you needed or staying bedridden. How much roughly did your treatment cost? Well, I don't actually have an exact number, but it was many thousands of dollars, including everything, tens of thousands of dollars. So on a month when I saw my doctor, this particular doctor, they don't take insurance because they want to spend as much time with you as necessary. And so sometimes my appointments would be an hour long and under insurance, like 15 minutes, that's all you have. And so... I felt it was worth it because I was getting really detailed care and they would actually spend the time that I needed to be able to figure out what was wrong with me. But you pay for that. So that was a couple hundred dollars. And then there was the antibiotics, which were covered by my insurance. But still, with the co-pays, that added up pretty quickly. Then because of the mega doses of antibiotics that I was taking, I had to take a mega dose of probiotics, which was not cheap either. And then I had the lab tests. So not only the tests for the diseases, but when you're on doses of antibiotics month after month, that can really take a toll on your liver. And so I would take these tests regularly to make sure that we weren't causing damage that way. And did your insurance pay for the liver tests? They would, um, but it was expensive anyway. You had good insurance, but it didn't meet all the expenses. No, not even close. So how did you come up with the money you needed? I... I tried to keep up with it as much as I could. And, you know, so all I had was my rent payment and like my food. And then the rest went a lot of times just went to the medical treatment. So I didn't have any savings for a long time. For some of the tests. So when I went in and had the MRI, that was after insurance, that was $2,000. And I was in debt and I had to pay off monthly payments. A couple times I had family members. I had my aunt and my grandmother who were able to help me out with some of that. I really appreciated them for that. So I I spent a lot of money. So you're still paying then for the treatment? No, I have paid it all off. Nice. That must have been a great feeling. Yeah. Well, that's the show for today, but that's only half the story. Tune into the next episode to find out whether Weintraub's treatments worked or did she have a relapse and if she ever got healthy enough to hike from Mexico to Canada. But before you do anything else, check out the show notes for this episode at pinopolis.com, where you'll find more information about this topic. I've included links to medical studies that explore some of the leading controversies about Lyme disease and tick-borne co-infections, like what puts you most at risk for getting bitten by a tick, which diagnostic tests are best, and which treatments work. And by any chance, have you ever battled a tick-borne disease? I'd love to know what you did to get better. To share your story, just go to painopolis.com and drop me a line. Lastly, I've got a quick question for you. Did you find this episode worth hearing? I'm guessing the answer is yes, since you've now listened to the whole thing. So let me hit you up for a favor. 
How about treating Pinopolis to a cup of coffee, figuratively speaking? You can do that by going to buymeacoffee.com slash Pinopolis and making a donation. We work really hard on the show, and your contribution helps support it. For a limited time, if you donate $5, we'll give you a special gift, a complimentary, immediately downloadable PDF copy of Pinopolis co-host David Sharp's new book, Cannabis Lullaby, A Painsomniac's Quest for a Good Night's Sleep. It has all the same content found in the print edition. You'll get that along with our gratitude. So if you enjoy the show, please support it. That URL again is buymeacoffee.com slash Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, and we wish you well. <laughs>